Let's turn to John chapter 3 and in verse 18. John's Gospel chapter 3 verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The play between the two kinds of people that are in the world. Those who are in and of the light and those who are in and of the darkness. Basically, ever since the Garden of Eden, when the lie came and became the very foundation of what we call the world system, we have been, you and I were raised in what you might say is basically a nocturnal world. Do you understand what I mean? We're basically bats at heart. We come out at night. We're more at home in the darkness. We skulk in the shadows. We're at home in a society of lies that doesn't even bother us. If we, we could uh, quickly look at it and realize how many lies there are. We look at commercials uh, on television and we know they don't tell the truth, but it doesn't seem to bother us. We accept it. Sometimes we even believe them knowing that they're not true. Um, we listen to politician promises and we know he's not even beginning to tell the truth, but it doesn't seem to bother us. We, we've gotten used to lies. We live in the darkness. And by the end of this hour, I think I'll show you that we ourselves have participated in that and we are perfectly at home in ourselves in the darkness. Because, you see, we feel very safe in the darkness. We can hide from each other. In the darkness of the lie, we hide from ourselves, we hide from each other, and we try to hide from God. It is in that darkness where we hide our secret selves and don't let ourselves be known even to ourselves sometimes, let alone to each other. It's in that darkness that shame multiplies. And with the multiplication of shame, there comes the multiplication of every problem that sin has ever brought. Now, let me quickly backtrack to last night so I make sure you understand what we're saying. The two kinds of shame. We must understand this. There are two kinds of shame. The first shame is good shame. When Adam felt guilt in the Garden of Eden, that was good shame. Never let anyone talk you out of real guilt. If you did it and you feel guilty, thank God for that. That is the proof that you can be saved if you will come and receive the pardon of guilt. It is guilt that drives me to the Savior. It is guilt that tells me I need to be saved and points me to the cross that says you can be saved. Guilt. Thank God for guilt. It's good shame. And then that feeling that Adam had that he was inadequate, he was weak, he was helpless, he was lonely, he was afraid. That was the big word because he was out of control of the situation and he was no longer in the arms of God's love. Now that was good when he, when he felt that, that, that was a good thing to feel because any person that is severed from God should feel inadequate. Any person that is not embraced in the love of God ought to feel lonely. For again, that is the nudge that sends us to the light and to the love that will embrace us. And our loneliness is swallowed up in his love and our inadequacy is swallowed up in his strength. That's good. As long as we follow its direction. But the shame that kills us, the shame that is the very atmosphere of hell, the shame that makes that darkness in which we hide from each other because we're ashamed, that shame is that we are ashamed of the good shame. Did you follow what I mean by that? I, I become ashamed that I'm guilty. I'm ashamed that I don't feel in control. I'm ashamed that I feel lonely. I'm ashamed of my weakness. And why would a person be ashamed of that? Because that person believes the lie which says that if you'll declare yourself independent of God, you shall be as God. And God 
isn't supposed to feel guilty, isn't supposed to feel inadequate and weak and helpless and lonely. And so I believe that I ought to be able to handle life independently of God. I believe I'm supposed to have power. I believe I'm supposed to be in control. In fact, I believe I'm to be omniscient so that I even know what will happen tomorrow. I believe all these things. And then I'm, I believe I'm supposed to take that perfect life and present it to God and say, See, I'm a jolly good fellow. Accept me. That's the satanic lie. And, and the remnants of that hang in the heads even of believers. That we, we've got to be this and do this and then... Our other believers will like us and God will like us and we'll like ourselves. And then I feel guilty and I feel terribly lonely and, and I'm scared of tomorrow and I, I, I don't know what to do in this moment and I feel out of control altogether sometimes inside. And, and I'm ashamed of that. I don't want you to know that. I, I, I want you to think I'm a God. I, I want you to think that this man is in perfect control of all tomorrows. I know all eventualities, all contingencies. I've got it all under control. So I never worry, you see. I want you to think that. Because in my adult brain, I think if you think that's how I am, you'll like me. Do you get it? And so I'm ashamed of my weaknesses. I'm ashamed of admitting I'm guilty. I'm, I'm ashamed of the very things that I should applaud. And because I'm ashamed, I hide from you and I try to hide from God and I put on my fig leaves. This fear, this fear that if you ever found out what I'm really like, you would reject me. Now, with that fear present, it leads almost without a thought to denial, if you think about it. Um, as soon as I'm afraid that you would reject me if you found out what I was really like, as long as I am afraid that God himself would abandon me if he ever could get inside me and see me, while those fears are there, I will go almost without a thought subconsciously into denial and lies. It's a necessity. Do, do, do you follow that reasoning? It's, it's a driving need. It's urgent to me. I, I have to do it, you understand. I, I cannot let you know what I'm like because I so desperately need your love. I so desperately need you to like me and to affirm me as having some worth in the human race. I, I don't let you know really what I'm like. So I have to lie. You understand that, don't you? I have to lie. I have to deny the way things are. And the trouble is you're doing the same thing. And so we live in this web of lies and subterfuge and hiding from each other and covering and maskings and fig leaves. Because we all believe the same thing. Go up and down the, these rows, every one of us, we believe the same thing. That if ever we were known to those who are significant persons in our lives, that they could never really love us. So we have our fig leaves and, and, and at God's presence, the shame increases. Have you ever noticed that when, when you would be alone in God's presence, or as Jesus says, you shut the door and not praying because so many times we pray, we yabber at the mouth at God simply to get away from him seeing inside of us. Our much talking is another fig leaf. Do you notice that? That's why you have the radio and television blasting out all day so you'll never have to face up to who you are. There's too much noise going on. But if ever I have to stand alone and keep my mouth shut in God's presence, and I don't pray and I don't even worship this time, I'm just here and I'm, come on, let the lights be turned on. Oh, I'm terrified he's going to know me as I really am. And if, if God knew me as I really am, he, he, he'd never have me in heavenly places. And that's why when God turned up in the paradise that has been blitzed by sin, it was a necessity to them. I, I use that word not positively. It's the necessity of sin. It's the necessity of shame. I have to lie. That's why Adam did what we discussed last night. What have you done? They are the most beautiful love words. Have you ever thought about that? God. God who knew all things that are who was everywhere present. God humiliates himself. You ever thought of that? In the Garden of Eden is the humiliation of love. God came and said, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. He was where Adam was. The silly man hiding behind fig leaves and tree trunks. God's there. 
the guy humiliated himself. He chose to put the ball into Adam's court and said, Adam, where are you? He is calling Adam out of shame. He is saying, take your shame, Adam, and bring it out here and tell me you blew it. I'm giving you the chance, Adam. I'm not going to come and discover you. I'm telling you, come on. Your choice, Adam, come on. And then the question, the second humiliation of God. He said, what have you done? When he knew what they had done, he was there when they did it. What have you done? For the same driving reason on God's side. Tell me, Adam. Don't let me have to tell you what you've done. Come on. Open up the door that you're barricading. Fling off the fig leaves and tell me. Bring what you're ashamed of into the light and then it's no longer shame. And you'll find God would have forgiven them right then. That that was the love of God coming in the Garden of Eden. Sometimes we get the impression that, that God came into the Garden of Eden, a God of wrath, and he's going now to damn them and blast them. I don't find that at all. He comes the sad God. Sad, what have you done? And then really there's no judgment to follow. It's simply, well, I told you, this is, this is the result. And then the only time there's excitement there is when he tells them how he's going to redeem them through the seed of the woman. God loved them even in their darkness, but they didn't see it. And Adam denies. He finally does come out and he finally does talk, but all he does is deny. He's got to keep himself barricaded from God. He can't tell the whole truth. He has to make excuses and blame shift and disassociate himself with what he did. You see, to stand in God's presence and say, this is me. No excuses, no blame shifting. Adam, Adam couldn't do that. Shame cannot do it. I have to hide. I have to explain to you why it was done. Because you understand, I, I wouldn't have done that. It, it was other people involved. And then, and then Eve, who takes the blame, but did you notice she also blame shifted a little bit, rather half-heartedly. She said, the devil made me do it. Right? It was, it was a serpent. And that goes on. Uh, sin has a way of being passed on. We're taking the whole of the next hour to talk about that. Iniquity, how it passes on. But enough to say that Cain, the son of Adam, he didn't need any lessons in denial. It came with the darkness. And when he has murdered his brother Abel, isn't it interesting? God came and asked him the same questions. Or same similar questions. What's happened? Whereas Abel, only now man is one generation removed from the garden. And he has learned the art of barricading and denying, only he does it now with arrogance. They stood there afraid. Cain's not afraid. He says, you're looking for Abel? Find him yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? There's an added arrogance now. Only one generation, but it's enough. We're a long way from there. We've learned the art of denial and we do it without even thinking. Hiding from each other and trying to hide from God. Let, let me say this very clearly. As long as I am looking to other human beings for love, for security, for significance, I will spend my life working at hiding my imperfections from them. Did you get that? As long as I am looking to other human beings for love, for my security and acceptance, my identity as a human being, then I am going to spend all my hours working at hiding my true self from them. Because shame tells me that if they ever got to know who I really am, then they could never love me. Did you realize? We even deny our age. I just want to show you how we carry this. I mean, it's, it's almost that we feel that if a person knows we're old enough to croak, they, they wouldn't love us, you see. <laughs> so we hide it and we pretend. Isn't it? Come on, it's true, isn't it? I, what is this? Someone here went on my age. They, they knew how old I was, they wouldn't love me. I was just, 
I'm trying to show you how deeply this is ingrained in us. We are so desperate for the approval of people and in a society where youth is the standard of excellence, then I don't want anybody to know how old I am. You know, I've got to keep that a secret in case people wouldn't love me. And that's why we deny we're sick. We want to be the useful crowd. See, the truth is, denial of, of this reality, it's, it's choosing fantasy. That's, what, that's really what it amounts to. Because the truth is too painful to accept. And so I choose to believe a fantasy world other than the truth. But why do you think Peter, on the night of the betrayal of Jesus, went to such great lengths? To establish himself in the eyes of the others as one who couldn't deny Jesus. Do you, do you remember? Why you, you're, you're going to deny me? All of you will forsake me and flee. And Peter explodes, he, and he looks at the others, and he says, "These all probably will." That, that really, you know, get into the the atmosphere. That's a nasty thing to say. Uh, they, these were sort of buddies for the last three. All these probably, but I will never do that. I will go with you to prison to death. And, Peter, your loud <laughs> mouth, um, it, it gives me an inkling that the truth is you in your own heart know that that's exactly what you're capable of doing. You're terrified of pain and trouble. And so you're denying, denying, denying. I couldn't do that. I would never do that. Have you noticed the preacher who is having a personal problem with sin, he preaches against that sin and the worse it gets inside him, the louder he shouts. You notice that? It's true, that's not a judgment, it's simply true. We all do it, we're all Peters. Because I know what I'm capable of, what I'm capable of, what I feel myself drawn toward is too painful to admit. See, why didn't Peter say, Jesus, that's right. Right now I'm scared spitless and I need your help. Why didn't he say that? Because he was afraid if the truth came out, his brothers would hate him and Jesus would despise him. So what do I do? Deny, deny. And because I'm terrified inside, I deny loudly. See, I, do, you, do you see that? See, denial is the alternative reality. In this world of lies, founded on the lie... The alternative to reality is my denials and my fantasy of the way I wish things were. This denial, it's, it's birthed, I say it again, it's birthed in the womb of fear. It's the very first words that fallen man said. God says, what have you done? Who told you you were naked? And Adam said, I was afraid. The very first recorded words that man said after he'd fallen, I was afraid. Afraid that everybody would know what I've really done, what I'm like, and they wouldn't love me. And so I lie, cover, hide. Think about this. This is so important. Are you afraid that everyone would hate you, reject you if they knew you? Have you ever really stood before God? I know I speak to believers for the most part. But let me ask you. Have you ever really stood before God just as you are? We sing it, just as I am without one plea. But that is, for, for a person who hasn't understood fully the cross, that's the most terrifying idea. I say it again, I've said it more than once, to stand before God without an excuse. And we're so quick. We don't just confess sin, we confess sin plus. There were extenuating circumstances, you see. We, we have little attorneys resident within us. And after we've confessed, they all rush forward and say, but Lord, you must understand, my client <laughs> got built-in excuses. And of course, the blame shifting, you see. I wouldn't have done that but for the company. I, I wouldn't have been involved there but, you know. And of course, then that isn't the confession of sin. That's the excuse of sin. See, I haven't done it yet. You haven't stood in God's presence just as you are. You've stood there hiding behind an excuse. And I suppose what we in this audience 
are most guilty of is coming to God with promises. See, I have never come to God just as I am if I'm telling him what I will just as be. <laughs> right? Just as I will be without one plea. Nice. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, how many, I don't know in, in this area, but how many on Sunday night, sometime on Sunday, they will walk forward to an altar to tell God what they didn't do and what they now promise him faithfully they will do. And absolute zero has been accomplished. Because you have come hiding behind a promise. See, we are you getting the idea of this hiding business? We just can't come. We have to hide. An excuse here, a blame there, a promise here. And we're the best of promises. Rededication is, is usually the readjustment of fig leaves. It's... <laughs> <laughs> see, that's all it is. We we come now, and I feel better. You see, I have mortgaged my future. You see, I, I can't pay now, God, but tomorrow I'll get up early and pray. On Wednesday I'll go out witnessing. On Thursday I'll see. I've mortgaged my future. Now I feel better. See, I feel better now because I we we hid the truth from God. God knows you can't keep it. So hey, were kneeling, lying away for you were worth. And you go back feeling better, but we've, all we've done is live in denial. What I'm talking about is to say, this is me, God. This is the weakness of my desires. This is the way I am. And I dare to believe you love me without cause, unconditionally, just as I am, and here I am. Do you know, for the first time in your life, you'll understand why it's good news. For the first time, God's able to get to you because you've taken off the mask. But, but if I think I have to perform, I have to do something in order to justify my being loved, then I will come to you and I will, will try and present myself to you as the person who ought to be loved. I will go to God seeking to manipulate him with my promises and my good works, seeking to make him love me. And, and, and most of the time, those things that we hide behind, they, they are so foolish. I mean, they are so foolish that we're the only ones who could possibly believe them. Do, do you remember um, Aaron? Uh, Aaron is quite a study. In, in the brick that I told you about, you know, we got a whole hour on poor Aaron. <laughs> well, I mean, if you were born into a family like that, you know, Aaron had an older sister for starters. She was the first feminist. Um, her, Miriam, you ever studied Miriam? I mean, she was some lady. I, she was the one, when she was only a kid, she went up to the princess of Egypt and said, hey lady, you need a nurse for that kid. Um, I mean, we read these little Sunday school stories. The, the princess of Egypt was looked upon as a goddess. And here's the slave of Egypt and somehow got into the palace grounds and had the gall to go up to the princess and tell her where to get a nurse for the child she's drawn out of the water, which was her baby brother. Uh, Miriam was some lady. She, she was the one that, that told Moses, it's about time you step down and let's uh, all have a go here at leading the people. Remember that? <laughs> Miriam was some lady. Well, Aaron was her baby brother. <laughs> Enough said, poor kid. He was raised under that. But then Aaron, he had a baby brother called Moses. How would you like a baby brother that every time he opened his mouth, they said, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> you know. And what place did Aaron have to play in life? God said, every time Moses speaks, you repeat it to the people. You know. Poor Aaron, he, he's it's a study in codependency. Uh, poor Aaron, he is. Well, you should get the tape. But um, what I'm trying to say is that the great day came. When Moses goes off up the mountain, remember, into the in the presence of God, and this was his great opportunity. He put Aaron in charge. I mean, ah, oh, CEO for a day. I mean, he's got it. Finally, he's in charge of of the people, and he acted like a good codependent. All he wanted to do was make the people happy. That's that's. I mean, rescue them, do his thing with them, but. After six weeks, remember they, they came and they said, Moses probably dead up there and um, we, we need some action. And, 
And, and of course, instead of, Aaron knew better, but he, he's, on this mentality we talked about last night, he's got to keep the people happy, as long as they're smiling. So, and so he said, that's, that's, that's right, we'll, we'll handle that. Bring me your gold, bring me your gold. And, and they brought him all their gold, their gold earrings and everything else that they had, and he melted it down. And the scripture says he, he fashioned a golden calf. And then he's still trying desperately to hang on with his fingernails to some semblance of truth. And, and he said, here is the God that brought you out of Egypt. <laughs> but the people didn't listen. And, and they're in an, a wild sex party before many hours are up. What a time for Moses to come home. <laughs> right in the middle of that. And you, you know the story. And when it's all over with all its pain and hurt, Moses turns to Aaron, and he knows Aaron. He said, what did the people do to make you do this? Aaron said, now I'm quoting. He says, my Lord, Moses, me? You know those people. They're wicked from day one. I, 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 you can't blame me. It's their fault. I, I had nothing to do with it. All, all I said was, bring me your gold. I put it in the fire. Out came this calf. I, <laughs> that's a quote from scripture. Isn't it crazy? Yours aren't much better. <laughs> we put on our masks and we hide and we fence with each other. We, we think we're so brilliant, but we're transparent. It's, we deny all our problems that have arisen because we're looking for a substitute for God's love. As we saw last night, all of our addictions, they're God's substitutes. It's only the unconditional love of God that can satisfy the hunger that is within me. It's only the Holy Spirit that can stimulate my spirit. But we turn to the created substances for stimulation and for a sense that we're loved. And because we know that, intuitively we know that our addictions are there to deaden the pain and anesthetize. Our empty hearts. We know that. And we know that if, if you took away the addiction, I have to face the emptiness and the pain and I, it stretches out in front of me into the mist. There's nothing, nothing except emptiness and pain and so I'm terrified that someone would take away my addiction. In fact, that's the first way you can do a spot check as to whether it's an addiction. You came away without your Valium and when you discovered it, you're terrified to face a weekend without it. Um, I'm terrified because now I have to face the pain. The anesthetic is gone, so I have to face the pain. And, and so we, we start denying the addictions because we know it's the addictions that are keeping us at peace inside. Some peace, but it's the best we could find. And so we say, my problem isn't that bad. We're trying to convince ourselves. I can stop anytime I want. It isn't harming me or anybody else. The truth is I'm in complete control. Please, uh, get off my back. I, I appreciate your concern, but everything's okay. We're terrified that someone would take away the anesthetic and then we'd have to face the emptiness and so we'll deny and lie about the hold our idol has upon us. And then, of course, those that surround the person with the addiction, those we talked about last night, who, who are finding their sense of identity and worth and value in their trying to help the person, they won't face reality either. Because the truth is, if we could get deep enough inside, they don't want anything really to change because they need to be needed. How many times have you heard this? Some of you have said this. He's not that bad. He's really a good man at heart. He's a lot better than he used to be. Won't be long before he's got it licked altogether. You know that's not true. Not true at all. He's the same as he's always been. But you keep trying to convince yourself it's getting better, it's getting better, because you can't face the reality of this sick spider's web that you're all caught in. Or how many times have you ever heard this in church? The truth is, it's all my fault. If only I could show him more love and understanding, if only I could pray more, I know that he would be different. Lies, lies, lies. It's all part of the network of darkness. 
Or we make excuses for the person in our family with a problem. We say, really, it's the men at work. They're a bad lot. And when he's with them, he does things that he doesn't want to do. That's not true. Every man and woman is responsible for what they do. It's not the men at work. Or we say, if only we could move. The problem, it's not his problem. The problem is Tulsa. If only we could get out of here. If only we could move from the neighborhood. Change jobs. But it isn't. Their problem. And when we deny for them, we're enmeshing ourselves in a deeper problem. Some, some of us were raised in families of darkness. Life, when we were growing up, was a complex web of lies and denials. We were, we were raised in a nest of shame. And shame multiplies in shame, like cockroaches. Um, let, let's take a girl, we'll call her Betty. But she's a real lady. She was raised in a family where you can't be human. Do you know those families? You can't be human. That is, you can't make any mistakes. If you are perfect, you're loved. You're daddy's little girl. You're the queen of the house. But should you make a mistake, any kind of mistake, should you come home from school with a B instead of an A+, you are imperfect. That makes you worthless, unlovable. You're sent to your room. No one is accepted in that house with their mistakes. So what does little Betty do? She does what, really, the only thing a fallen child knows what to do. She's got to avoid the pain. She's got to. There's something in that little girl that's crying out to be loved. So the only way to be loved in that house is to deny every mistake. Lie, become a master, an expert in lying. Because if you don't lie about your mistakes, you're going to have pain and you're going to be rejected. And so life becomes one long course in how to lie and cover and hide. Trouble is, it isn't when you leave home, you say, well, now I can leave that. Become part of your life. And so today, Betty lies about everything. The trouble is she lies about things that don't matter. Lies about things that no one really cares what she did. Because she acts as if everybody is like her father. And the tragedy is the children now have learned how to lie. In fact, the whole family is one mess of lies. And on and on he goes. And there are three girls in her family, so they'll take it to three more families. And on and on it will go. On and on. What about Jim? Born into an alcoholic family. In fact, you might say that he was born into a family conspiracy. And the conspiracy was to cover for his father. When he was growing up, all he heard was his mother lying to the neighbors, lying to his employer. Until he assumed that's normal. He assumed that every family lies. In fact, he didn't know it was lying. He thought that was one way of telling some kind of truth. So Jim joins in the denials in order to be loved. In a vain hope, silly hope that he caught it from his mother, that if we tell enough lies, there'll be happiness in this family. He lied to his friends at school as he got older because he was terrified they'd come home with him after school and find his father flat out on his face on the front living room rug. So he lied and kept them away from the house. Today... Jim doesn't know what reality is. He cannot touch reality because he lives as he's been raised to live in lies. And both Betty and Jim add another layer of denial to that denial. You see, we find it next to impossible to hate our parents who are the givers of love, or supposed to be. They couldn't face it that their parents had done what they had done to them. And so they add to their whole approach to life with lies, they add to that a fantasy family. That is, if you sat down with Jim or Betty and says, what was it like living in your family growing up? Oh, we had a wonderful family. They've created a fantasy family because they cannot face the fact that their family was the way it was. 
In fact, it can be so bad back in that family and the child cannot bring itself to admit it was so bad that actually you'll have amnesia. And you just cannot remember anything of childhood. It's just gone. Denial, denial. You know, it all arises, I suppose, well, I've said it, it comes from the lie, the lie, I'm supposed to be as God. And I so believe that. I trust the Holy Spirit's opening your eyes to see how much of that hangs on even to us believers. You, it's supposed to be right. It's supposed to be Godish. Life is supposed to be Godlike. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. And after a while, then we say, well, let's make it what it ought to be. And we move over into the fantasy of it's like this. We look at life through tainted glasses. We refuse to face the way things really are. Refuse to face the way people are in our family. Refuse to face the way we are. We live in this lie because we're saying it ought to be like this. It ought to be nice. It ought to be peaceful. It ought to be joyous. What? In a world where God has been kicked out? No, it ought not to be. When, when I see the way the world is, I am not shocked. That is the way the world ought to be without God. You see. Uh, but we, we deny Come on. This is so much part of the church today. There are churches, and I don't know them. I don't know Tulsa. I really don't. There are churches in this city simply by the law of averages that are living in complete denial. They won't admit what's going on in their own church. They didn't admit it. Because they're believing the lie that they're supposed to be like God, then God will be proud of them. They're supposed to be like God so that all other believers in the town will accept them. So in most churches, we're not even allowed to admit I'm hurting. I didn't go to some churches and tell them that I'm hurting because they'd tell me I didn't have enough faith. I, can't, I, I didn't go and be honest because they reject me. They don't want people like that here. I long for a church where I can go there. And stand up and say, my name is Malcolm. I am a new creation. And I'm in the process of being saved. And I've had some problems this week and I'd like you to pray. I long for that. To be honest. And not be kicked out. But sometimes on Sunday morning, you argue with the wife. You kick the dog. You throw the cat through the window. Cuff the kids. Drive through three red lights. Skid into the parking lot. And then... How are you today, Brother Smith? Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus is wonderful. That's lying. Why can't we say, we've had a rough morning. <laughs> Pray for me, you know. Skip goes to the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And Alan, who is a lifelong friend, said things to Skip on Wednesday night. That was nothing short of stabbing in the back. Skip can't believe it, what Alan said to him. He's devastated. How could my friend of all these years say that to me? And the prayer meeting might as well not have happened. He's so devastated. And he goes, so he can't sleep on Thursday, on Wednesday night. And, and Thursday is a disaster. He can't really sleep on Thursday night either. By Sunday, he's a churning tornado of hurt and pain and rage and revenge. He goes to church on Sunday morning. And Alan meets him before service and said, Skip, what I said on Wednesday night, I was totally wrong. I cannot make any excuses. All I can say is, would you please forgive me? Now, Skip has been taught in our 20th century American church. Good Christians don't feel angry. Good Christians don't feel hurt. Good Christians are filled with the Spirit and go through life Tinseltown. <laughs> so what's on the line here? Here's a man saying, I hurt you on Wednesday night. I am asking you forgiveness. That's a man of God. But skip here. If he says, yes, you hurt me, I forgive you, He's admitting he got hurt. 
He's admitting he got angry. He cannot, in American church today, he cannot bring himself to do that. And so he does, and I've seen this a thousand times. He looks at Alan, he says, Wednesday night? What happened Wednesday night? You remember when I said, oh, that. Forget it, brother, forget it. That was nothing. And he walks away. See what's happened. Alan is not forgiven. He asked for forgiveness and it was denied him. Because you cannot forgive anyone until you admit they've hurt you. And so Skip is incapable of forgiving Alan because he can't admit, I was hurt. But they both know there's a Grand Canyon between them. But Skip won't admit it. And the result is, of course, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And inevitably, they talk around the church about the problem. And so they gather a little clique around them. And within a year, the church has split over Skip and Alan. And everybody says, I wonder what happened. It must be the devil. <laughs> Do you relate to that? I, let me put it this way. Denial. Denial is the gospel of the darkness. This is the proclamation of the darkness. It says this, if something hurts and you can't handle it, deny it and create a fantasy world. That's the gospel of the darkness. I would go even further. What Rod sang earlier, be my shelter. Denial is the shelter of satanic darkness. I run into denial and I feel safe. It's the satanic counterfeit, in that sense, it's the satanic counterfeit of the Holy Spirit dunamis. Think about this. When you deny, you do receive strength. It's a frightening strength. Think about it. You receive a strength that has its long roots back into the lie and therefore into hell itself. I have a strength to survive in situations that I should flee from in fear. Loneliness comes into my life and disappointment. Loss of a loved one. I deny that I feel lonely. Good Christians don't feel lonely. <laughs> Jesus is enough. Yes, he is enough when you admit you need him. But if you say, I'm not lonely, I'm not lonely. You've shut the door. You have received a hideous strength to stay in loneliness when honesty would have brought you out. Out into the shelter of God's love, but also out into the shelter of other brothers and sisters who would have helped you if you'd have let them know. It means a strength to act lovingly toward people who abuse us. People that are abusing us mentally. People that abuse physically and sexually. And I deny anything's wrong. He's sexually abusing your children and you're denying it. And that's giving you strength to stay there and let your children keep on being sexually abused because you deny the plain facts that you can see. Do you see what I mean? It's a hideous, it's almost, I hesitate to use the word, but it's almost a hideous anointing that enables us to do. He's beating you black and blue. You have to cover your face in makeup to go out. And you say, but he really loves me. Denial. You, you won't face the facts. And it's an anointing. It's strengthening you to stay where you're going to get killed. I counseled a woman. She said when they went to bed at night, her husband lay beside her with a loaded rifle underneath her chin and went to sleep with his finger on the trigger. And she said, but he loves me really, he's not a bad man. Do you realize I, I hear that rustle of shock, but do you know how many wives in Tulsa go through that? Maybe not that, but something similar. And deny, deny, there's nothing wrong, he's really, really nice guy. Denial 
It means I can smoke and drug and drink myself to death while I'm saying, I'm different. I can handle it. My metabolism's different. Right? Isn't that true? There's nothing wrong. It's a strength, you see. It is a strength. I, I can do what anyone in their right mind could never do. But denial thugs my mind. It blots my reason. I say it again, denial is a substitute for God's strength. But to receive God's strength, I have to come out of denial. And when I come out of denial, I'm terrified. Because that looks empty, looks like an arid desert, there's nothing there. And I have to walk out of denial, and it's only then that I meet with God's strength. That's when the unconditional love of God fills my spirit. And I realize I am truly free from all of that. In denial, outside of Christ, and many times when we're struggling within Christ, we're imprisoned in a darkness. We're emotionally crippled. It's not a nice word, but we are. Because we hear and we see only what fits our fantasy reality. That's being emotionally crippled. And then we only say to others what we believe others want to hear. So we neither see the truth, nor tell the truth, nor act the truth. We live in our cocoon of denials, lies, subterfuges, covers. And we call that normal. You'd be amazed how many people have been to these seminars bringing their friends with them and they brought them saying, now these are the people who need help. And it's around this time that they just throw everything in the air and say, I'm the one who needs help. Because we call most of this normal living. And it's so far below the normal that God intended for us to live. You see, at the root of it all, we're back again. It's that severed relationship to God. You say, well, I'm saved. I know you are. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we live in a generation where the gospel is very inadequately preached. And that's the truth. Most of the time, most of us here, and I know what I speak. I've been in the ministry 40 years, and 17 years of those 40 years was spent doing all the stuff I'm telling you about right now. And... and we, in the evangelical, Pentecostal church, we have actually presented a gospel that is with ultimate concerns. What we say, um, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? Really, that's not the point. The state of your life right now, you wouldn't want heaven. So why, look, the gospel is not to do with destinations. The gospel is to do with relationships. The gospel comes to people whose lives are totally screwed up. And it doesn't help me when I hear that I'm going to take this screwed up life into heaven, which is quite different. Heaven would be hell to that person. I'm not in, once my life has heaven in it, heaven then is assured. It's, it's neither here nor there, of course. I don't have to think about it even. No, I'm not interested in heaven or hell, though I believe in both of them. I'm interested in you becoming a whole person. That's the good news. And the good news begins with the bad news. That I'm wrong. Not just a little bit wrong, totally, absolutely wrong. Repentance isn't going forward and weeping over a few sins. Repentance is saying I am totally, absolutely wrong. I... Flew once out of Chicago on my way to New York City. And as we went above the clouds, the captain came on and said we would be landing in Phoenix in so long. That's a sickening feeling. You're on the wrong plane. Now, I can't repent that I have the wrong stewardess here. I do have the wrong stewardess. My stewardess is on her way to LaGuardia, but... 
It's too late to repent over a stewardess. You, you understand. Uh, they put a meal in front of me. I can't repent over the meal. True, my meal is on its way to New... In fact, somebody else is eating my meal. But, do you get what I'm saying? I'm sitting in the wrong seat. It's the wrong air I'm breathing. It's the, it's the wrong geography out the window. It's all wrong. Everything's wrong. Repentance is saying it's all wrong. It's not saying I did this and I did that. It's not going through a catalogue of sins. And then next Sunday you remembered I left out August of 1980. And back you go again to the front. No. It's not. Repentance is not going over a list of sins. It is saying I, in my entire approach to life, is wrong. Because the good news is you can change planes in midair. That's the good news. You, you follow what I mean. I, once, once I repent, that is, I do a U-turn. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the cross of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, that's what baptism is about. That's why I baptize people as soon as they accept Christ. I tell them, you just died. Let's have the funeral. You bury the person and they're raised again. And that's what it's all about. Coming to Christ is not just uh, souping up my jaded life. It, it's not assuring myself I have a ticket to a new destination. It's a total death to what we're talking about. Death to the lie that I can be as God. Perfect, together, in control, so that God will be proud of me, you'll be proud of me, he will love me because I deserve it, and you'll love me because I'm a, an A-OK -okay guy. I realize that is the essence of original sin. And I have died to that. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, I rise again to a new life. Where Jesus Christ is my life and he is the truth. He is the light of the world. And those who walk in him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And that light is the unconditional love of God. Um, I, then, then I begin to move increasingly out of the denial and the darkness. It doesn't happen all at once. Because I, I have so much denial in my life that I don't know half of it. I'm even denying my denials. And so It takes time. As Jesus the light shines and shines. He's the son of righteousness and there's healing in his rays. And day after day as I stay in the rays, uh, I, I see more and more. I'm, I, there's a denial there. There's denial there. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. I'm moving. Because I am a new creation. The old leaves keep dropping off. Keep dropping off. Keep dropping off. And I move toward not only spiritual health, which is birth to resurrection, new birth, but now I begin to move into emotional health, mental health. And as I said, many times physical health follows automatically. So there it is. I trust you, you've, you've got, this is so important, that there's no life, there's no health while we deny. And you don't have to come out looking so great. You come into the light just as you are. And that's when you understand the unconditional love of God. He loves me. He delights over me just as I am. And life then becomes a response to that love. And you've moved from doing to being, from darkness to light from denial to truth. Amen.